Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Danny Bessner, and we are very lucky to be joined for the second time, the first his first regular American Prestige episode, by Greg Brew, postdoctoral fellow at Yale's Jackson School of Global Affairs and lover of all things oil. Uh, so we have asked him, uh, Greg was on the show previously, you may recall, uh, to talk about OPEC Plus and their, their uh, wonderful little uh, gift of... Uh, oil cuts, oil production cuts uh, a couple of months ago. We have asked him back. Uh, he does have a book coming out. It's called Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War, but that's not out yet. We will be talking about that uh, later when it's available for you to purchase. But uh, for today, we wanted to have Greg back to talk about just what's going on with global oil and, and how is this whole system structured. So Greg, thank you for coming uh, back on the program. Uh, thanks so much, Derek, for having me back on. Uh, it's great to be back. Lots of stuff to talk about. Your your uh, commemorative twi- two appearance koozie will be uh, in the mail <laughs> presently. So let's let's start off, Greg. Let's just start off very open ended here. What do people need to know about the global oil market and the way that it's structured? Uh, I feel like this is something that media does not do a terribly good job informing people about or explaining kind of uh, what's behind it. You hear OPEC plus did this and uh, the United States is tapping into the strategic petroleum reserve, but there's no, there's never any really context for this kind of stuff. So uh, what do people need to know about how this, this whole thing is structured kind of behind the the headlines? So I guess I would start by saying that, you know, we're, we're, we're typically pulled in a couple of specific directions when we talk about oil. We talk about the price of oil, we talk about OPEC, and we talk about big consumers of oil like the United States or maybe China or Europe. And that tends to be where the attention is focused. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that the global oil market, let's say, let's say a market for now, although I may complicate that a little bit later, the global oil market is a very diffuse, very complicated structure. There are literally dozens, if not hundreds of oil producers, be they companies or countries. There are also dozens, if not hundreds of other entities that are involved in the production, refinement, transportation, or marketing of oil and oil products. Like that's an important thing to recognize is that we, we talk about oil and then we talk about gasoline, and these are two very different things. That oil is oil is pretty useless until you turn it into something useful, into a refined product. Greg, now now yeah. I may just be a bumpkin from Southern Queens, but I have a question. <laughs> um, even dozens this is or Danny's hundreds, unfrozen caveman lawyer. Highlight <laughs> yeah. uh, dozens seems actually kind of small for the global oil market or hundreds actually seems kind of small for something like global oil. So could you just maybe just, just um, clarify for me, are we talking governments? Are we talking huge multinational corporations? Just what is sort of the quality of the people involved before you get into the structure? So we have a sense of the actors. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So let's start with States. The majority of the world's oil as it's, existing in the ground currently is owned by governments, is owned by states. 
most oil reserves were nationalized or have been nationalized. So they're the property of governments. And most governments in major oil producing countries in OPEC or elsewhere operate their national oil industries and exploit their natural national oil reserves through national oil companies, right? Companies that operate as arms of the state that operate commercially, but are also tools of policy. So that's an important thing to recognize right off the bat. And just very quickly, each state will have a different relationship to that entity, right? Some states will be more involved. Some states will be less involved. Some of that money will go to the people. Some of that money won't, will only go to capitalists. So that we're talking about dozens of different arrangements, I imagine. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And at a very basic level, some states own their oil companies. And in some states, the oil companies own the government. Uh, not that I'm thinking of any country in particular. Right, that I precisely. Be living yeah, right, yeah. Right, right. I mean, in, in, in some places, the oil company existed before the government did. And, precisely, and, right. And state, or, or was a colonial, yeah. a colonial formation that was taken over in the post-colonial period, various elements of it. Okay, great. Absolutely. Sorry, we could return to the structure. I just <laughs> want to get a sense of the agent. Oh, no, yeah. No, but that's an important part of the structure. That's, that's uh, you know, very important to talk about. I mean, uh, here in the U.S., we do. We talk about big oil, right? The big oil companies. And there are still, you know, sometimes they're called international oil companies or IOCs. And these are your Exxon Mobiles, your Chevrons, your BPs, your Shells. Um, and they are big in the sense that they are very rich. They have uh, billions in capital assets. Their profits are counted in the billions of dollars. But as far as the amount of oil they control in the market, it's fairly small when compared to the amount of oil that is controlled or owned by national governments. So that's an important thing that doesn't always get addressed in the discourse particularly in the U.S. Like, you know, we like to talk about greedy oil companies, uh, but there are also greedy oil countries <laughs> that are very, very interested in the price of oil and the movement of oil. Which uh, is why we're open to Exxon Valdez advertising with American Prestige. All Exxon Valdez executives listening, just please contact producer Jake. And please send me a koozie. Uh, but <laughs> speaking to uh, Derek's question or his point before, absolutely. You know, when we talk about national oil companies, there's companies like Saudi Aramco on the one side, which is a massive company, you know, arguably one of the most valuable companies in the world when you, when you take into account the value of Saudi oil reserves. And then there are smaller state-owned firms in places like uh, Angola or Equatorial Guinea or other places where there's, uh, or Guyana, for instance, where there's oil reserves, there's an emerging oil industry, and these companies are fairly small, they're looking for investment, and they very often partner with the big oil companies or other state-owned firms, particularly Chinese firms. That's something else that doesn't get discussed that much in our national discourse is the fact that Chinese companies have become incredibly important to how the international oil industry works. So, you know, it's not just a story of the U.S. versus OPEC. It's not just a story of OPEC plus, you know, leaning on prices or trying to move prices with their production policies. There's dozens or hundreds, or perhaps even thousands of actors that are involved in the international oil industry. Part of the reason why it's often very difficult to understand how this industry works. So I have a, another very basic question. What is the international legal structure related to this industry? Is there an international legal structure? How are raw materials, especially raw materials like oil, which are basically the lifeblood of the entire system, regulated at the level of, this, uh, of the globe? So... For this, we you know need to go back into the history a little bit and see Boring. how these, ah, I know. Nobody wants to talk about history here. Uh, you know, it, in the beginning, 
you had the big Western oil companies, you know, the precursors of Exxon, Mobil, BP, all those. And they worked in the global south. They discovered and exploited oil reserves, and they did so very successfully, and they made a lot of money. And that made national governments over time uh, very rich, but also very annoyed. And these governments exerted sovereign power over their oil industries, over their oil reserves. In the case of Iran, there were dramatic nationalizations that were later reversed, both through corporate collusion and also uh, uh, timely strategic interventions by the United States and Great Britain. You're welcome, everybody. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, we did a good one there, guys. Uh, And then you have cases like Saudi Arabia or Kuwait, uh, where nationalization, the exertion of sovereign power over uh, sovereign oil resources, happened fairly slowly, and it happened in a slightly more cooperative fashion, right? With companies being told by state authorities, hey, we want our oil, we'll pay you for it, but this is how we're going to do it. So as far as the international legal structure around the exploitation of oil, generally speaking, it is recognized that states have sovereignty over oil in the ground, that in order to exploit that oil, you have to come to an agreement with uh, national governments. Now, that gets fuzzier when you start to enter into other spheres of international law, particularly uh, offshore or deep water or Arctic exploitation, which is becoming an increasingly uh, au courant focus now that, you know, because we burn so much oil, the ice caps are melting and now companies are interested in exploiting the oil that might be there now that the ice is gone, you know? So as far as the international <laughs> legal structure, yeah, right? No, I mean, it's- That's it's so much. grim. Jesus yeah, Christ. No. Oh, yeah. I no, mean, you know, we're just going to end. What's the problem? I don't see the issue. Yeah, everyone just chill. Yeah. That that it's actually freeing to realize how much we are we are screwed. So so uh yeah. Greg, just to to clarify, oil under land, pretty clear the the law relating to that, oil anywhere else kind of up for grabs. The one big exception is the United States. Naturally. As far as far as the legal, you know, there's that fantastic uh scene at the end of There Will Be Blood, spoiler alert for a movie that's about 10 years old at this point. Where Paul Dano is telling Daniel Day-Lewis, like, hey, I've got a patch of land that might have oil under it. And Daniel Day-Lewis is like, that, that oil has been drained. Because in the United States, the oil doesn't belong to whoever owns the land above it. The oil belongs to whoever gets it first. Got it. So establishing, establishing rights over subsoil resources in the United States tends to be a little wonkier, a little fuzzier, because of the rule of capture and the way that... Uh, that the oil and mineral industries have been developed from a legal point of view. But almost everywhere else in the world, it's the property of the state first, potential property of a private entity second. So uh, let's maybe talk a little bit more about uh, history. I know uh, we don't like to do that around here, but um, talk about the changing dynamics uh, of the oil industry. I mean, I know you were a little hesitant to use oil market. We may uh, talk about oil markets at some point, but uh, it feels like we're in a a period of some flux in this uh, industry, both because of the push for renewables and climate change, you know, in the face of climate change and because of the rise of China really supplanting the U S essentially as the, the dominant uh, customer basically for, for a lot of global oil outlets. But, um, there's this, I think, myth that this has been that there was at some point in the the 
like past, there was like a time of stability for the global oil market. That's what people talked about with the Saudis, right? When the, with the cut and, you know, he had all these think pieces about maybe we should rethink the relationship between the U.S. and the Saudis because it was predicated on the Saudis making, you know, providing stability in the global oil market. And I thought like, when did that happen exactly? Like when was the stability? So maybe uh, you could give people a sense of how this market has developed it hasn't really been around that long in in you know kind of global time considerations so how has it developed and and what are the big changes that have happened in recent years right so when we talk about let's say a global market for oil important uh you know sort of signpost that we can start with is you know the mid 20th century the the immediate post war period this is the period where sources of oil from outside the United States. In 1941, the U.S. made up 60% of global oil production, along with the bulk of global oil consumption, right? You had the U.S. market for production and consumption, and then you had everyone else. And that was basically it. The post-war period is when we start to see an increasing importance of international oil, not only international production of oil, but international consumption of oil. It's the beginnings of major automotive culture, major consumption of oil products in Western Europe, Japan, elsewhere. And this is the period where big oil, the IOCs, the big companies that we still have today, this is the period where they really dominate because they are able through a variety of quasi-cooperative arrangements, they are able to match supply to demand fairly effectively on the global market. This allows them to stabilize prices. This allows them to ensure that there isn't surplus capacity that's going to set prices lower. It also allows them to make tremendous profits. And this period, which historians sometimes refer to as the post-war petroleum order, lasts from about the late 1940s until the oil shocks of the 70s. And that's when this company arrangement, this, that's when this sort of private capital dominance of this small group of companies falls apart. How does that period relate to the process of decolonization and nationalization? So it's happening alongside decolonization, right? So most of the states in which oil industries are being run by these private companies, most of those states exit periods of colonialism or become independent states or were independent states to begin with, in the case of Iran and Venezuela, never formally colonized. Those are sort of two major oil-producing states during the post-war petroleum period. The thing about the companies, however, is that through the concessions they're able to earn, through the legal arrangements that they work out with the uh, local governments, they're given a great deal of autonomy and control over how they operate the national oil industries. So in many ways, the oil industries until nationalization in the 70s are operated like colonial enterprises. So this is naive. Western companies. If, if this is a naive question, but if it was 1880, I imagine they would literally send in armed forces to sort of force these concessions. How does that work? What, what, are, what are the trades being made in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s to get these concessions? Sometimes it is military intervention, but sometimes I imagine it's, it's more subtle um, arrangements. Yeah. I mean, in many cases, these concessions are older. You know, the concession in Iran that is exploited by private companies is reached in 1901 and renegotiated in 1933. In Saudi Arabia, it's uh, made in the 1930s in Kuwait and Iraq, similar time period. So in many cases, the concessions are uh, originally signed in a colonial or quasi-colonial period. They're renegotiated later and in most cases renegotiated to the benefit of the states, to the benefit of local governments. And what really greases the wheels here is money, right? The companies are incredibly successful at making money. 
from the production and sale of oil, in part because they're able to operate this global oil economy fairly successfully in a fairly stable terms. So they can stave off nationalization from the late 40s up until the 1970s, with Iran being kind of the one big exception, because they pay an increasing percentage of their profits to local states. That's really what staves off nationalization during this period. That's really what keeps this sort of quasi-colonial enterprise operating until it all falls apart. The late 1960s, early 70s, you see a wave of nationalizations. You see OPEC taking over price and production fairly quickly and the company's private order collapsing. And that's the beginning of the volatility in the global oil market that we're still kind of wrestling with today. I want to talk a little bit about... um sort of oil as a driver of U.S. foreign policy. And I think this was a, a, a connection that you could make much more explicitly, um, you know, a, a few decades ago. The things that have arisen since then, the, the the rise of the shale industry in the U.S., which has turned the U.S. into a major global supplier, um, you know, the fact that, that the United States is not as dependent on, let's say, um, Middle Eastern oil, for example, as we were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, it feels like this hasn't really done anything to, to affect U.S. foreign policy, but you could talk in, in more detail about that. I think what we've replaced sort of in, what we replaced kind of concern over being able to, to get oil from the Middle East is now we're concerned about making sure that the oil flows from the Middle East because when you're the global hegemon, you're the global empire, everything is your business. And so, you know, disruptions in oil prices and the instability that, that can cause. And I want to get into that separately in a, in a bit, but, uh, that's all, you know, part of the United States purview now. So it doesn't feel like, uh, these changes in the marketplace have really affected U.S. foreign policy, but you can talk a little bit about how this has played out over time. Yeah. In many ways, it's kind of a reversion to the original premise of U.S. foreign oil policy, which was sort of born out of the post-war period, right, the 1940s and 50s. During this period, the United States is still the world's largest oil producer. It is still providing most of its own oil. It's importing relatively little, although a growing percentage over time. So the establishment of the company's operations in the Middle East, Latin America, and elsewhere and the growth in oil supply that takes place in the post-war period is primarily to feed growing oil demand in Western Europe, Japan, and elsewhere. It's not really to feed demand in the United States. That becomes relevant in the 1970s. But originally, the premise was we need to secure supplies of oil, and we will use foreign policy means to do so, in some cases, direct intervention, in the case of Iran in 1953 but elsewhere as well. We will use state power to ensure the flow of oil, not for our own consumption, but for the consumption of our allies in Western Europe, Japan, and elsewhere. So US, the, US, the interest of the US as a hegemon in the flow of oil through the global market is a fairly old premise. And it goes away a little bit after the shocks of the 70s, because suddenly the United States is importing a tremendous amount of oil from the Middle East, particularly from Saudi Arabia. And the need to secure oil becomes, if you like, more immediate, more urgent. And that is what sets in place in the 1980s, 1990s, this idea of we have a partnership with Saudi Arabia. We have this oil for security arrangement will, where we will back them, we will provide them with arms, support. We'll have a cozy diplomatic 
uh, arrangement. And in return, they'll make sure that we get the oil that we need while also supplying the global market with the oil that it needs. And now that the U.S. is no longer a major importer, although we do still import quite a lot of oil, the sort of basic premise that was set in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s between the U.S. and Saudi, I would argue, is no longer truly relevant, but it's still there, right? You can't really get away from 30 years of foreign policy making inertia because of something that's happened in you know, the last five or six years. It's difficult to do. Your your area of focus, of course, is is uh, or at least in your your book, will be um, on Iran. Let's talk a little bit. I don't want to get too far into that because, uh, again, we will have you back on to talk about the book. But during you know in the seventies, the the capstone, sort of the the climax of the seventies, is of course the Iranian Revolution. Uh, what did that do to to oil politics in the United States, particularly with respect to to foreign policy? Yeah, so in uh, you know we're, we're accustomed to talking about the oil shocks of the '70s, and we talk a lot about the first shock in '73 because the Arab oil embargo is part of that shock, and it's something of a psychological moment for the United States, right? The gas lines, the Arab embargo, all of that. But in many ways, the shock that comes in '79 is even more important. Um, and to give you a little bit of background, right? So the Shah of Iran, Iran's ruler, um, is very concerned, very interested in Iran's oil production and in taking control of the price and production of oil. He wants to push the companies to one side, the private Western companies. So he is instrumental in the price shock of 73. He's there, that the head of OPEC saying, we need to increase the price, we need to take control. In the, in the following years from 73 until 77, the Shah is consistently pushing for higher and higher prices because he wants to fund his national development programs, because he wants to fund his military buildup, Oil has really become the bedrock of his regime's finances. So by the time that the revolution happens in 79, Iran is producing roughly 6 million barrels of oil a day. It's the second largest producer in OPEC behind Saudi Arabia. It's one of the largest producers of oil in the world. And when the revolution happens in Iran, that production collapses from 6 million barrels a day to less than 2 million barrels a day. So what we have in 79 is a true supply shock right? Suddenly, there are millions of barrels of oil that, was, that were on the market that are no longer there. And this, of course, creates you know, immense economic dislocation. It pushes uh, inflation higher and higher. It's one of the reasons I would argue that Volcker institutes the Volcker shock in 19, 1980, sets interest rates even higher to, to sort of rein in the inflation that's being driven by the dramatic escalation in international oil prices. Uh, the sort of the psychological effects of the second shock, the fall of the Shah, are then followed by the hostage crisis, which begins in late 1979. But we have to remember that the hostage crisis, which of course is sort of the major news story of the next year, is happening alongside the disruptive economic impacts that the oil shock has on both the United States and the global economy as well. So this is the Iranian revolution and the second shock is to me kind of the key turning point in this U.S. obsession with energy security. This idea that we need to use state power, we need to go to the Middle East, we need to have a permanent military presence there to prevent another supply shock from happening, to prevent another shock, for, to prevent our supply of oil being significantly disrupted the way it was in 1979. The other major player we haven't talked about yet uh, on, in terms of the global oil business is Russia. Uh, and of course, this is a good week to be doing that because... Uh, as we're recording this just a couple of days ago, the European Union's grand Russian oil price cap uh, went into effect. Uh, I laugh because I'm, I'm uh, 
dubious about whether this is actually going to work long term. But um, leaving aside the the war in Ukraine, and and we can talk about that in a in a moment. But can you talk a little bit about Russia's history as a major oil player? And and I know we talked about this the last time you were on in terms of what OPEC Plus is and its formation. But maybe give people a, a more detailed kind of sense of of how that came to be and and uh, you know how Russia and the Saudis came to be viewed at least as so dominant in terms of uh, setting the the rules of the road. Sure thing. So you know, generally when historians or journalists uh, write the history of oil kind of globally, they always start in the United States. They always start in Titusville, Pennsylvania, in the 1850s with, uh, you know, the early drilling that happened there. That is ostensibly meant to be the beginning of the oil industry. Um, in Russian Azerbaijan around Baku, they were developing oil wells and oil refineries at precisely the same moment. The Russian oil industry is as old, if not perhaps even a little older, than the American oil industry. So Russia's been a major oil producer from the very, very beginning. Uh, the thing about Russian oil history, though, is that it goes through these peaks and valleys, right? So very early on in the 20th century, around 1900, 1901, Russia is briefly the world's largest oil producer. Russian oil production collapses during the Russian Revolution, 1917, 1918. It recovers slightly in the 1920s and 30s, and then collapses again during World War II. Production later comes back in the 1950s, and investment continues in Russian oil fields, primarily in Siberia. At this point, they've moved from the Caucasus towards uh, Siberia or north of the Caspian Sea. And by the 1970s, the Soviet Union becomes the world's largest oil producer again. And it holds on to that title for several years in the 70s and 80s. Most Soviet oil is being consumed internally or is going to Eastern European client states or other sort of Soviet satellites elsewhere. But a lot of it is being sold to Europe, right? A major consuming market that's right there on Russia's, on the Soviet Union's doorstep. And European economies become, if not dependent, then uh, heavily integrated with Russian energy products during the you know, late Cold War. When the Cold War ends, Russia retains much of its oil industry, albeit in a slightly diminished form. And under Vladimir Putin in the early 20th century, there are continual, or the 21st century rather, there are new and increasing investments in energy production, not just oil, but also natural gas. And in most cases, the market that they have in mind is Europe, right? Geographically, it makes sense. Strategically, it might make a certain amount of sense for Russia to build dependence with a neighboring region that's closely tied to the United States. But in many cases, Europe was sort of always the major market for Russian energy production. Um, and that's, of course, caused <laughs> a lot of problems for the United States, for Europe, and at this point, yes, for Russia as well, as a result of its war in Ukraine. I think the war in Ukraine is a good place to talk about whether, um, you know, something you alluded to earlier, whether we can talk about a global oil market or if we should talk about a collection of oil markets. Uh, because I feel like the, the, the war in Ukraine has put this into some relief, like kind of stark relief with the, you know, with sanctions forcing the Russians to kind of cut, you know, deals with India, China at, at uh, discounted rates. It's kind of, you know, it, it seems like it's fragmented or maybe opened, you know, kind of, um, opened those fragment, like the fragmented nature, uh, of the oil industry, uh, up for, for more scrutiny than maybe would have gotten, uh, prior to the conflict. But, uh, you know, in general, what is your, your sort of 
position on this? Is there one single market? Does it make sense to talk about it that way? Uh, or should we talk about a more fragmented thing? And then, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the effect that the war has had on, on that uh, construct. Yeah. So, you know, part of my reticence to talk about one big global oil market uh, springs from my reticence to sort of simplify things to that kind of language. You know, very often uh, you hear a metaphor of a bathtub being used to describe how oil works. That there's this big bathtub filled with oil that when some oil gets released, some more gets pumped in to maintain the appropriate level. And that oil is kind of moving around in this highly hydraulic way through the global economy. And that, you know, oil from one region could potentially supplant oil from another region. And that's, in many cases, not really true. Now, crude oil comes in many shapes and sizes. It comes in a variety of different forms, uh, you know, in, in terms of its physicality. There's oil that's rich in sulfur. There's oil that is developed largely from natural gas or comes in the forms of natural gas liquids. Uh, there's oil that's sulfur light that makes a better, a better blending stock for things like gasoline, whereas heavier oil is more useful for making fuel oil or, you know, asphalt or you know, what have you, a variety of other products. So crude quality matters when discussing, you know, how the energy market, how the oil market is sort of divided. So that's one reason why I'm always kind of reticent to say, oh, there's one big global oil market. Another issue is price, right? The price of oil does tend to change from place to place. There are benchmarks, Brent and WTI being two of the biggest ones, that are very often looked to to offer some guidance as to what the quote-unquote price of oil is at any moment. But at the same time, there is now a highly developed, highly complex futures exchange that depends on changes in the price of oil. There are derivatives that are drawn from changes in the price of oil. There's the futures curve, which is often looked to by market analysts to judge where the price of oil might be going. So there's a variety of different market uh, analytical tools that are used to judge the price of oil, the global oil market. But to speak directly to your question, Derek, we had a global oil market in one way or the other. And I don't think we have it anymore. And there are two big reasons for that. The first reason is the return, if you like, of the United States as a major oil producer. That has changed the market in a pretty dramatic way. The fact that the United States is no longer interested in importing as much oil as it used to, that it's looking increasingly to its own domestic oil resources, or if you like, the resources of North America more broadly. The other major reason that you mentioned that I think we're still kind of trying to wrap our heads around is the impact of Russia's war on Ukraine and efforts by the United States and the G7 to interfere or even control how Russian oil now flows to its customers overseas, right? Whether or not the price cap works is a question that really kind of depends on what you think the price cap is meant to do. Is it meant to control the price of oil? Is it meant to keep Russian barrels on the market? Or is it meant to, I would argue, slowly move Russian output away from the West towards markets like India and China to end up with a situation where the G7, the United States, no longer has to worry about, quote unquote, depending on Russian oil. We reach a point where the global oil market becomes more bifurcated, more divided. And thirdly, I will just throw this out because I tweeted about it a few days ago. The amount of oil in the world that is now under U.S. sanction in one way or the other is truly staggering. 
Something like a third of all the proven oil reserves in the world are now either under U.S. sanctions or under measures like the G7 price cap. So the amount of interference that the U.S. as a hegemon now exercises over global oil supplies is truly staggering. So to suggest that there's some kind of global market that moves according to supply demand or, you know, what have you, what kind of whatever kind of free market economic ideology you're trying to sort of support here, to me, is increasingly a tenuous proposition. I don't know if we have multiple markets. I don't know if we have multiple blocks, but we're clearly moving away from having one unified global oil market towards something that uh, you know remains to be seen. Uh, the sanctions issue is mind-boggling to me because we spent you know weeks being angry at the Saudis because oh my prices are going to spike and the elections coming up and I don't know what we're going what are we going to do and you could just take the sanctions away you could just not sanction Venezuela and Iran and there's your oil you know I mean that's that's it it's as simple as that it's the United States kind of uh, you know feigning I think concern for oil prices for political reasons but in reality. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're very happy to keep these countries kind of underfoot. Um, I did want to ask you because you, you talked about, um, you, you sparked this, uh, in my head because you're talking about the different types of oil. And of course, um, the prized Libyan sweet oil, sweet crude was one of the main reasons why NATO just had to go in. Uh, in 2011 and intervened to stabilize the Libyan nation. You're welcome again, by the way, uh, that we were able to do that. Um, but can you just talk about that case in particular and, and the role that oil played in kind of sparking what I think even Hillary Clinton at one point now uh, has admitted was a, was a mistake? Yeah, Libya has a very interesting role in the history of international oil. Um, it's where, you know, I alluded or I explained a, a moment ago how the post-war petroleum order kind of collapses in the 1960s and early 70s, that this wave of nationalization hits. And that wave, that movement against Western oil companies really starts in Libya with Gaddafi, the, uh, the Libyan revolution in 69, and then Gaddafi's efforts to, to take control of Libyan oil in the late 60s, early 70s. Libya is crucially important to that. And part of the reason is Libya is sort of unique in its position. It uh, is very close to Europe. It's very close to a major consuming market. For petroleum. As you mentioned, Derek, it has uh, what's known as light, sweet crude. This is a, a form of crude oil that uh, in the 1960s and 70s was very attractive because countries were moving towards uh, uh, implementing environmental measures that made burning oil less, uh, less polluting. So sweet, uh, light crude from Libya was very attractive uh, if you were trying to make, you know, if you were trying to embrace fuel that, was, that didn't have so many pollutants in it. Uh, and more recently, you know, in, in line with the intervention, because of Libya's proximity to Europe, its energy sort of naturally gravitates towards uh, being consumed in the European market. And that was one of the major reasons why European states were so concerned about what was happening in, uh, in Libya. It's not just that they consume Libyan oil or Libyan energy. It's that that energy will hopefully, from their point of view, continue to supply European needs uh, moving forward. And it's actually, funnily enough, it's something that I've been looking at are trying to uh, look at more closely due to the situation in Russia, right? Europe is going to be increasingly turning towards alternative sources of energy. They're already looking, they're already, you know, sort of doubling down on North Sea or US LNG, but they're looking more and more at expanding North African oil and gas, expanding Mediterranean gas. And part of me wonders, like, are we going to see a renewed engagement with what's happening in Libya, where there's been a situation 
that has been left unresolved for several years now. Really, two governments kind of warring for control over Libyan uh, Libyan statehood, with Libyan oil being kind of the big prize. I wouldn't be very I wouldn't be sh- uh, surprised if Libya becomes uh, more prominent moving forward. Uh, I do want to talk about emerging oil markets because I think this is a uh, an interesting time to to see countries sort of embracing offshore in particular, you know, new offshore oil resources at a time when we're all supposed to be weeding ourselves off of oil because of climate change. But before we get to that, um, there's one big topic I wanted to get your, get you to sort of, uh, talk about is, um, the, the destabilization that can be caused by very low oil prices. This is something we haven't experienced for a few years. Uh, but you know, was, uh, was a real thing, uh, not that long ago. Um, I think in the United States, because while we are a major oil producer, our sort of mindset about oil is a consumer mindset. We're worried about the price at the pump. We don't want oil prices to be too high because that, uh, that's inconvenient. But we tend to think less about the effects that very low oil prices can have, not just on countries like the Saudis that have amassed a lot of wealth and can ride it out. Uh, although it does do some some you know strange things to their budgets and their planning uh, during periods of very low oil prices, but but in terms of countries that are wholly dependent almost on on oil as a source of national revenue, what happens in those places when when prices go down? Yeah, so Derek, you you alluded to something that I've I've always been trying to understand in more detail, which is that the United States really throughout the last 150 years of its history has both been a major consumer and a major producer of oil. That we have, uh, you know, we have a national psyche, perhaps, that's built around the problems of consumption. But we have a national political economy that integrates quite a lot uh, with the industry of production and the interests of production. And the interests of production are very often linked to an interest in maintaining a higher price, whereas, of course, consumers want lower price. So how have we been able to sort of reconcile those two, you know, countervailing interests? Uh, interests? I think the problem of low oil prices is that low oil prices make high oil prices, right? So what happened more recently was in 2014, 2015, the price of oil started to fall quite dramatically after a period where it had been quite high, you know, in excess of $100 a barrel. And it was falling because there was suddenly more and more oil being produced from the United States. And most of that oil was being produced by companies that were reliant relying heavily on very cheap credit. So profiting from oil production wasn't something that they, you know, obviously they were interested in, but because they were receiving so much financial support at very, very favorable terms, they were able to increase production very quickly without having to worry about the impact that it might have on price. This, of course, was very concerning to the members of OPEC. And the results of the price crash of 2014, 2015, 2016, in some cases were devastating. I mean, what's happened in Venezuela in the last five years it's due to U.S. sanctions, sure, but it's also due to the dramatic drop in oil prices that came in 2015, 2016. It's a situation from which Venezuela really has yet to recover. The problem of low oil prices is that because it prevents companies and states from having the necessary resources to invest in new production, they have to cut that investment. So if there's a period of low oil prices, five or six years into the future, suddenly you're hit with the problem of underinvestment. They haven't invested enough in new production. You have to keep finding oil to make oil. You have to keep finding new resources, new reserves to meet future demand. And your ability to do that is predicated on having access to uh, money, to capital. 
And the only way to produce capital and money for that is through profits that are generated by higher prices. So the longer the price of oil stays low, the more problems you're going to have meeting future demand because of the underinvestment problem. And this is a problem that's facing both the members of OPEC and also has faced uh, American oil companies. It's part of the reason why in the last year we've heard so much about capital discipline among American oil companies. You know, now the prices are higher. We expect the president, President Biden expects American oil companies to invest in more production to bring prices lower. But those companies have been very reticent to do so because they don't want to flood the market again and they don't want to they don't want to see prices fall because they're they're worried about meeting meeting their future demand. So it's really about finding the perfect price, both for OPEC and for the U.S. oil industry, you know, just speaking in terms of their interests. But I also think there's an interest there when you're talking about the energy transition, right? If you want to manage declining demand for oil, you can do that, I think, much more easily in a situation where prices are stable as opposed to where they're fluctu- fluctuating wildly between depressive lows and excessive highs. So there, I, I just have a couple of more questions. I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the the Russian price cap because I'm not 100% sure uh, when this episode's going to come out. So I don't want like uh, to be outdated or, you know, the price cap may have collapsed entirely by the time we, you know, we air this, but I don't know. Um, but it just came online on Monday. Uh, can you describe for people, uh, it's a $60 price cap. It's predicated on basically threatening insurance companies and shipping companies uh, not to ship Russian oil above that price point. Can you talk a little bit about how this is supposed to work and whether you think it will actually work or or um, what it's meant to do? I mean, you alluded to this earlier. What is it actually meant to do? Is it meant to keep Russia pumping oil? Is it meant to, you know, uh, cause them to, to lose oil revenue? What's what's all what's the uh, the sort of underpinning here? Yeah, the price gap is very interesting. And I, I share your reticence, Derek, about uh, sort of proclaiming or declaiming on it now because things could change very, uh, very dramatically in a week or two. Um, so it's, it, is, it is a little bit of a wait and see situation. But as far as how it operates, uh, you summarize it quite well. Essentially, what the price cap says is that the members of the G7, with I think one or two other countries uh, cooperating, these companies, these countries won't accept, won't allow their maritime shipping insurance companies to permit the flow or sale of oil above the capped price. So these these countries will continue to take in Russian oil so long as it's taken in at this capped price. They won't take it at a higher price. And the impact that that has on Russian oil flows, you know, could, if, if Russia decides to cooperate with the cap, the impact may be negligible. If Russia does what it says that it's going to do and not cooperate with the cap, That means that there's a considerable amount of supply. General consensus is around a million barrels a day that will either have to find a new market or will be taken off the market entirely. So the impact on the global oil market could be fairly significant. A million barrels a day is a lot of oil. However, Russia could choose to do what it's done recently, which is find new markets, primarily in Asia, primarily China, India, several other markets as well. But the problem that they face there is that in many cases, when they try to sell oil, they have to place a discount on it. They have to offer it at somewhere between $10 and $20 under the benchmark. And where prices are now, that puts them, that puts their sales around the realm of $60 a barrel, around the realm of where the cap is. So, you know, if, if you're an economist, you might look at this and say, oh, Russia does have an interest in selling at the cap. Why don't they do it? You know, they're not they're going to get roughly the same amount that they would get by selling to India or China or elsewhere. 
The problem with that presumption is that it completely misses the geopolitical purpose of this cap, all right, or the diplomatic purpose of the cap. You asked Derek, you know, what's the cap meant to accomplish? My opinion has always been the cap is primarily a political gesture by the United States and the G7 to indicate that they need, that they're willing to do something to reduce the flow of oil revenues to Russia, but to do so without reducing the amount of Russian oil on the market, because that would cause prices to spike as they did over the summer. So I think the cap, the cap is a very interesting experiment in attempting to manage the price of oil by countries such as the United States that generally have not attempted to do so, but are now doing so in quite a dramatic fashion. Uh, so whether the cap works or not, you know, it, it, it sort of depends on your, your definition. Uh, I did see a story this morning from, I think, Reuters that suggested that the seaborne movement of Russian oil had already been impacted by the cap, that there certainly were fewer tankers moving Russian oil than there had been on, on Sunday. So it is possible that the cap may end up impeding Russian oil flows in the near term. But whether it works you know, over the longer term, I think, is, is, is still, uh, still difficult, difficult to say. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I saw a similar story. It was um, based on... Uh, out of Turkey, actually, that apparently the Turks are being very um, kind of uh, strict about checking insurance records now for ships that are coming in into and out of the Black Sea to try and get Russian oil, which, yeah, I mean, you know, it could uh, could have some impact here. And I think on the insurance front, maybe you can talk, speak to this briefly. Um, you know, that that even seem, it seems to me has some ramifications for uh, Russia selling to like China or India, if, if the insurance is wonky, then, you know, even those countries may be like, I don't know, I don't know if I want to, you know, be involved in this, if I'm not gonna, if I don't stand to be covered in case of a loss or, or, you know, some, some kind of, um, unforeseen circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, um, that could very well happen that Russia's access to, uh, maritime transportation for its oil could be impeded because, Insurers don't want to cover tankers that are moving oil that even move outside of the cap zone, right? Outside of the cap countries to places like China. Um, Russia is trying to get around this by buying up a whole bunch of tankers and trying to establish their own systems of insurance that, uh, that move outside these bounds. But I saw a report from a few days ago that suggests that China isn't willing to work with that, that China wants Russian oil to be insured as it was in the past. So, you know, there are other obstacles that could be, uh, that could be generated that could result in Russian flows being reduced. Uh, even to countries that ostensibly aren't cooperating with the cap. Um, and I think, you know, what's looming large over this whole issue, over this whole question, is what's the ultimate goal of this cap? If you're thinking sort of geostrategically, it's to end the war in Ukraine, right? Right? Everybody wants this war to end. Will except Lockheed Martin. And except, Raytheon and yeah, except <laughs> all the weapons <laughs> well, they're, manufacturers. They're, you know, they, they, they might have, you know, they may have gotten what they wanted out of the war so far, um, moving forward anyway. Uh, but China wants the war to end, and they want cheap energy. And I think their, their interactions with Russia thus far have suggested that Chinese calculations are primarily motivated by their own economic and strategic interests, rather than this, so, you know, this imagined alignment between Xi and Putin which I think is, you know, mostly sort of fodder for, for, for cover stories at this point. China wants the war to end. So whether or not they work openly with the cap or whether or not they take action that may end up supporting the cap, uh, that could end up um, affecting Russian flows as well. Uh, but nobody wants, the thing is that nobody wants the price of oil to go up. So that's been looming over this entire issue. How do you, in, how do you implement this cap 
and accomplish a political goal, a diplomatic goal, while avoiding another price shock. So I, I think we're at a, a place where we could could wrap up. I, I do have other questions, but I think maybe we could roll them all into kind of a, a, a general question, which is, what do you see happening right now in terms of oil internationally? And I mean, you know, uh, we've alluded to um, the effort, which, you know, let's say I'm skeptical, uh, the effort to wean ourselves off of oil in the name of climate change. Um, there are a number of countries and a number of companies is still investing quite heavily in searching for oil, in developing offshore, new offshore oil deposits. Um, you know, we have uh, the the kind of interesting phenomenon, I guess, of, of the Arctic, which you talked about a little bit earlier, which is now open because we've been burning so much oil, it's now open to more oil exploration. But it's a completely kind of uh, lawless. Pl- I mean, there's really, you know, staking a claim there is uh, potentially, you know, could be, could be, you know, a source of conflict down, down the road. But what are the main kind of, um, you know, things that you see happening in terms of oil that, that could be major issues uh in the coming years yeah i think um i think climate change is a big one and the energy transition i think it's been acknowledged by sensible people that demand for oil is close to peaking or has peaked already and will decline moving forward as the energy transition takes place and as demand for as as energy as oil consumption starts to decline as you know energy alternatives are are ramped up this is happening i mean it's not really open for debate anymore the data is pretty clear pretty clear in suggesting that oil is going to be being used in less and less uh, uh sources moving forward whether that happens quickly or whether it happens slowly and who ends up capturing remaining demand right because even if 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 demand for oil is 100 million barrels a day now and let's say you cut it by a third in 20 years, you're left with, what, 60, 70 million barrels a day. That's a lot of oil. Who's going to produce it? Where's it going to come from? There's, I mean, I think there's, this is a relevant issue in the in- interactions between OPEC, Russia, and the United States, because suddenly you have you know, a, a global hegemon that is ostensibly interested in the energy transition, ostensibly interested in climate change, that is also now a major player on the global oil and natural gas market. So that's something that OPEC, that's something that Saudi Arabia is trying to wrestle with, right? How to maintain the aspects of the U.S.-Saudi relationship that are beneficial to Saudi, while also trying to compete with the United States as an energy exporter. That's something that's going to define this relationship, I think, moving forward. I don't think it's going to end the relationship. I'm relatively skeptical that you're going to see a major break uh, because there are still things that are tying the U.S. to Saudi, you know, concerns over Iran, concerns over regional security, what have you. But I think that is th- that's going to be looming over the relationship over the next, uh, you know, the the next decades. So climate change, U.S.-Saudi relations, those are two those are two big things that I would point to. The third, I would say, you know, we talk a lot about oil. I'm an oil historian. That's where my head's at most of the time. Arguably, there is more demand and increasing demand for natural gas than there is for oil. Natural gas is, has been one of the major drivers of reducing emissions in the United States. It's the reason why we don't burn nearly as much coal as we used to. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in renewable energy, wind, solar, geothermal, but 
increased production and consumption of nat gas is the reason why emissions have fallen. It's the reason why coal is, has, has fallen. Greg, why, why do you hate renewable energy? <laughs> now we have our headline. No, I mean, it's, it's, when you look at the data, One it's shill, you know, shills for shell. <laughs> you said it, not me. Uh, and, and now, you know, there was, you know, natural gas, you know, you can produce it from oil wells, you can produce it from natural gas wells, you can burn it for heating, you can burn it for electricity. For the longest time, you couldn't really move it. You know, you needed pipelines, you needed a local source. So natural gas was a regional thing. It was something that you got from, you know, a nearby field. Now we have LNG, now we have liquefied natural gas that can be, that can be moved frozen, stored, contained, transported over thousands of miles. The United States, Qatar, Australia, other places have become major LNG producers. I mean, the 21st century is going to be the century of clean energy, but it's also probably going to be the century of natural gas more than it is the century of oil. Oil demand is going to fall. There's no indications that demand for natural gas is going to, de- are going to decline uh, in the near term. So that's another major major factor that I would see. You know, the less we become interested in oil, the more we're likely going to become interested in LNG. And the situation in Europe is uh, indicative of that. You know, I talk to people when we're discussing the European energy situation and I say, it's not an oil story, it's a gas story. And that's the way you have to frame it. And that's going to be, uh, that's going to be the situation moving forward. Well, once, I mean, once we get to <clears throat> net zero, excuse me, I don't know why I had to clear my throat there. Uh, we'll be able to burn as much oil and gas as we want and, and we'll, we'll be at net zero because net zero yeah. is, is a real yeah, thing. Net Absolutely. zero offs- offsets, offsets. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're planting trees. We're planting trees off- all, oh, trees. so many trees. Yeah. So Garden many trees, folks. Story. We love the about? trees. We love the trees. We're planting many, many, many trees. Folks, it's going to be great, the trees. Think about the trees. <laughs> Greg, I want to thank you again. Greg Brew uh, from Yale University, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming back. And uh, like I said, we will have you back to talk about your book uh, in, uh, in uh, before you know it, probably. I mean, I'm sure you'll be counting the days, but uh, it'll be soon enough. Thank you so much, Derek and Danny. It's been great. Thanks for having me back on. Can't wait to come back. Thank you.